The content of this podcast should not be considered financial or investment advice. All interviews and discussions are opinions only, and the podcast has been created without taking into consideration the listener's financial objectives, financial situation or needs. Listeners should obtain independent advice before making any financial decision. Hi everyone and welcome to this edition of Stock Doc. I'm Dr. Nigel Finch and today my guest is Caroline Bowler. Caroline's the CEO of BTC Markets. Now BTC Markets was founded in 2013 and is the largest, most liquid Australian digital asset exchange. Well, welcome to the program, Caroline. Thank you very much for having me. Now last we spoke in March this year, uh, Bitcoin was trading at around 9,000 Aussie dollars. Now today it surpassed 16,000. So that's around 70% uh, improvement versus the ASX, which has gained only 38% over the uh, the same period, the ASX 200 that is. Look, this, this market, this digital asset market is a really unique market and there's a whole lot to talk about. So I'm hoping that today what we can do is really frame this conversation to have a, a look at um, these digital assets in review from where we're standing, which is a very, very, um, you know, heady vantage point. So, you know, there's so many different factors at play that we can, that we could talk about. There's, you know, the, there's changes in, in regulation that have happened over time. There's changes in liquidity and, and sort of the adoption. Um, but um, first of all, can you give us a very brief uh, overview, particularly for listeners who aren't aware of BTC Markets, uh, what you do and what your role is in the Australian marketplace? Yeah, brilliant. Thanks very much for the opportunity to, to come back and talk again to your listeners. So BTC Markets, as you say, we've been around since 2013 and we are the largest Australian digital asset exchange we have, well, at this stage, well over 270,000 Australians um, have an account with us, and they've traded just shy of $10.6 billion since our inception. So so small compared to the traditional capital markets, but a nice healthy clip um, for digital assets in Australia. Now, we ourselves only list, I think, is it 14, 15 different types of uh, digital assets. Um, but with those, they tend to be kind of the larger market share. If you look at the big guys, the likes of your Bitcoin, Ethereum um, and XRP. So um, so as I said, the platform platform since 2013. Um, and our role, I think, has been one perhaps of leading the way in some senses we, we have a partnership with ripple who are um a kind of international body that are involved with um payments in particular using blockchain for payments so we're a partner of those for for their on-demand liquidity program here in australia so we help the transfer of australian dollar into the filipino peso and using blockchain technology that process happens now in i think it's milliseconds a couple of milliseconds and your money gets moved from here in australia over to the philippines now that's just the first market that they've used here in oz they are markets all over the world um and this is a rapidly expanding and growing um use case for for blockchain technology so yes there's the trading piece but but our use case as an exchange and the technology that we're using but also the use cases for this for this um, asset class is is ever growing Carolyn last time we spoke we were talking about the digital assets um, and categorizing them into a few different um, sort of more familiar um, um, 
uh, buckets. We talked about them being used as commodities. You've just spoken about it being used as a, a currency. Um, we've also spoken about digital assets being used as financial products or financial assets. And given the the you know looking at it in review, are you are you starting to see that there's been a gravitational pull in terms of these digital assets being used in in one category more than the other? Um, I don't I don't think we've seen that yet. I think that it's still it's still so young. I mean, Bitcoin's only been around a decade. Ethereum, which would be the second largest, has only been around for about five years. So it's still too soon, I think, to kind of pinpoint a specific use leader in the use cases um obviously bitcoin is the largest in the market by by some by some distance um in terms of kind of ownership of market share um but i think that may also be as much to do with first user user advantage as anything else um although obviously there's there's a lot that fundamentally they're different with bitcoin to, to the other tokens and i think that's true too for anybody who's looking to kind of come in and get involved in digital assets and, and kind of just even dipping their toe in in terms of research and exploring, um, if you kind of want to take three examples there, so you talked about kind of from a commodity point of view or like a utility token to use the parlance of, of the industry, um, something like that would be um, a coin such as Ethereum. As an example, if you're dipping your toe into your research, so commodity token would be Ethereum, which will give you access to a service or to an application. So, so that's kind of how you can think about that coin. Um, and if you want to think then about like a, a payment token, which would be like, you know, the means of value transfer, that goes back to that Ripple on demand liquidity program I spoke about. And their token there is something called XRP. So if you want to kind of explore it, dip your toe in, then start looking at XRP and, and do a bit of research around what that means in, in the market. Um, and then a security or an asset, you know, where there's something kind of underlying it or there's, uh, I suppose, the speculative piece, if you like, almost perhaps look at Bitcoin for there. But there's others, isn't there? They're doing what's called a security token offering, which is what I would call like a tokenized IPO. So if you're used to dealing with traditional financial markets and you know what an IPO is, there is an equivalent of that um, that's coming in and, and regulated, which is the important piece. A security token offering is a regulated instrument. Um, and that's coming in under that security or asset bucket. So if it makes it easy, you can kind of divide it up into those into those three. Um, mm -hmm. And, and certainly, you know, because this is such a vast and sometimes overwhelming field to, to get up to speed in, in such a short space of time, I, I find it personally easier to kind of view it under those three those three um, pockets. Now, so in terms of domination, as I said, Bitcoin probably has the largest market capitalization, but that's not to say it's going to have the largest amount of use cases. It's used as a store of value. It can be used somewhat as a form of payment um but it's not used as a utility token so and that's where the likes of an ethereum would step into and its underlying technology would, would step into the shot there um and so it's it would not be considered a store of value per se do you know what i mean so there is there is a certain amount of siloing between each of the three and similarly for for xrp that that's considered very much a payments token now all of these are, are tradable all of these are available to to buy and sell on the digital asset exchange but they also, as I say, have those underlying fundamentals that, that differ from one another. And, and a very exciting. I mean, you could you could lose yourself in all the stuff. It's so fantastic and really, really exciting and engaging for somebody like myself. Anyway, uh, find it fascinating. Yeah. Well, look from maybe not from necessarily just from the perspective of the Australian Exchange, which is BTC, but mm -hmm. maybe uh, let's adopt a more global view here. 
What are some of the trends that you're seeing in relation to volume um, in these various digital assets? Yeah, I think that, I mean, uh, over the course of the year, so 2017, 2018 was a particularly voluminous year in the sense that the trading activity was uh, heightened. It was the height, height of the hype of the market, if you like. Mm. And 2019 saw a tail off in that. But here in 2020, we've seen that regroup year on year. Um, I think I've seen about a 60% change in volume on our platform, um, which which is indicative. But And this is not considered to be you know a bull market per se. Like there hasn't been those outsized... Um, trading activity at all so i think we're kind of seeing perhaps a normalization of there just being a consistent increase in and in the volume um of trading activity certainly globally what's also impactful i mean keep in mind this is still very much a retail driven uh asset class uh, and retail driven uh, investment process uh, more so than institutional although institutional is very much coming into play. And this is that's very much a core trend for 2020. And I imagine we're going to see, well, I don't imagine, I'm, I'm very sure we're going to see more of that going into 2021. Um, it, but even, I mean, kind of the research notes that are coming out of the investment banks and, and, and the um, asset researchers are very much pointing and considering Bitcoin in, in particular, um, as as a, a store of value and as as a as a commodity or sorry as an asset class worth considering worth discussing, um, even for example you know just kind of go back to the point about it being mostly retail driven S- the Square payment app I'm not sure how big it is here in in, in Australia but in the US it's quite significant um, and its cash app allows trading in cryptocurrency in particular BTC so this is for millennium US millennial retail investors. And in quarter two, they bought 858 million US dollars worth of Bitcoin, far more than the largest um, investment fund, which I think was 750 million. So just to give you a sense of how, how much it is driven by retail. But then in this in the last month, six weeks, we've seen an announcement come out for some massive, uh, massive money market funds, for example, Stonebridge who Group, who I think managed like 10 billion US dollars, they've put 100 million into in their treasury in Bitcoin, following along the same kind of things that MicroStrategy did, the 425 or thereabouts million square have got similar. So they're now starting to haul this and put this into their own treasury as, um, I don't know, as a fallback option, as they're starting to get, dip their toe in, they're starting to get interested. But these are NASDAQ listed companies. These are serious investment funds. The, these aren't just retail investors anymore. This is very much a growing of the scope. Um, and, and that's something that, that you know, we've seen it come out this quarter. And I think that's something announced. And so we're going to see um, growing into into 2021. And with that, I mean, when those announcements come out, the market reacts. Yes, there's a slight there's a slight pickup. Um, but and but where before maybe a year ago that would have sent the market into far wider convulsions. Now there's almost that expectation is in the market. Um, in terms of the price in the market. So we didn't see particularly large swings in reaction to this. Um, it is almost like, you know, welcome <laughs> welcome to the party, to, to, to a sense. Mm. Well, I guess from my, uh, my experience in working in capital markets, I've got, um, a, a, I've seen a number of, of clients um, from a governance perspective, rewriting their investment mandates to include um, digital assets as, a, as mm. an asset class. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're investing in it, but certainly there's a recognition now. And and this may go to a comment that I just want to pick up on from JP Morgan, 
um, now after the sell-off from at the start of COVID-19, mm-hmm. um, JP Morgan came out and said that, you know, uh, Bitcoin is here to stay, you know, so really talking about, I guess, not just Bitcoin, but perhaps all digital assets. So what are some of the factors that, 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 that you're starting to see that's, that underpin a comment like this from major institutional investors? We'll talk about the retails later, but, you know, I'm starting to see that, um, in, um, certainly governing boards of in investment funds are opening their eyes to it. They may not necessarily understand it, but they're opening their eyes to it. What, what, what's driving a comment from, say, JP Morgan to come out and make a profound statement? It's, it's really multifaceted. I mean, JP Morgan in particular, since Jamie Dimon had come out and kind of written off Bitcoin as, as a scam, similar to the yeah. praise of days of yore, while at the same time they had a desk that was trading in it, which is the, the irony never fails. Um, and for something like JP Morgan and others, I think it's a question of, I, I know the particular report that, you, that you're referring to with JPM, and, and there was a talk there as much about the resilience of the market. There was a resilience in the market structure, that there's liquidity in the order books, you know, that the, the, the signs are there that point to a certain amount of longevity around it as an asset class, which is, you know, I mean, don't get me wrong, there's a very positive noises, but they're, you know, equally they were, they were somewhat, you know, tempered by caution and so on. They weren't, they weren't going all gung-ho into it. And I think that that's probably an important distinction to make. But but where it is significant is when it talks about its longevity as an asset class, that this is something that's going to be sticking around, similar to the likes of gold, similar to the likes of other commodities. I mean, there was a time when emerging markets, trading in emerging markets was considered you know, a very rash decision to make, um, whereas now it's quite a, a normal part of your diversified portfolio that you would be in there. I mean, people trade wine, for goodness sake. So there's you know, there's, there's lots where the value is there that you're going to find the investors. In terms of where the institutional players are coming in, I think they're seeing um, they're, they're seeing their own markets are particularly flat. They're seeing what's happened with quantitative easing. They're looking at, 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 at cryptocurrencies, the Bitcoins, other digital assets, looking at their unique structure. I mean, Bitcoin is a hedge against def- uh, inflation is, is, is a fairly well known or becoming better known anyway, f- for sure. Um, so these are really interesting um, facets, equalities that institutional investors are looking for to add to that diversification, to add to those different opportunities when their own markets themselves are flat. What's been holding it back, I, I personally think, is as much about the on-ramp and the off-ramp for institutional players to come in. I think that's been holding it back. I'm still not sure that the infrastructure is fully there yet to allow large-scale institutional investment into the asset class. I'm I'm optimistic that it's coming. I just don't know that we're at that stage yet. Yeah. Um, and, and that's something, but I mean, this is an industry that has you know, effectively mushroomed up overnight. So, I mean, the pace it's going at, it's a fair clip. So um, so it's only a matter of time. Um, but we're certainly seeing the build-up, say, for example, of a prime brokerage section. We're looking at, you know, stock lending is in there. We've got the futures and options market that's, that's coming up. I mean, institutional players need this exposure to derivatives. So so it's all coming through, as I say, that, that mushroom effect. It's, it's coming through. But that's all been, you know, without it, those institutional guys can't get in and more importantly, they can't get out. Mm. So um, so for me, as I say, yeah, it's a question of time. What's, mm. What also helps, if I can kind of, you know, jump on a little bit there, what's also helped has been the noises that have been coming out of regulators, um, not just in the US, but, you know, in Europe and other major markets. But even just most recently, I mean, it's been quite transformative to see how the narrative has shifted, how the narrative has changed. 
um, and even like looking at, say, the SEC chair. I mean, they've been trying to get a, a Bitcoin or a cryptocurrency ETF in for years and it has not come through. Um, but just I think only last month, the, the, the chair, they were saying they're actively working on regulations to permit a, a crypto ETF, which is that is that is a considerable movement forward for an industry not so long ago that was kind of considered a pariah. So it's done very well. But the the the, the SEC is now talking about collaboration across regulators with the SEC with the CFTC, and and that they're they're now coming to the to the table and going okay right we well. We're just going to, oh, I know the European Union's approach is one of, we're going to regulate innovation in rather than regulate the innovation out. Mm. And I think there is that recognition that this is something new, this is something different, but this is technology. This is not something to be afraid of. This is something to be investigated and perhaps you know embraced where the value sits. So that's mm. what we're seeing coming out now. So I mean, once you start seeing things like, I mean, once the SEC are going to do a crypto ETF, that just has a knock-on effect to the rest of the financial markets, and you know everybody is now going to have to start looking um, looking at similar structures and similar products. So really exciting. I mean, this is the other thing too. Like they they, they described it as um, that the SEC got off on the wrong foot in this innovation, uh, and and that's as much to do with the industry itself needing to um, I suppose clean up its act. Would that be a way of phrasing it? Um, so, and, and equally for the SEC to go, okay, hang on a second, you know, there's, there's something more to this. Um, so now there's very much that, that coming together. Mm. Well, certainly there's been, you know, there's always been sort of a, um, a tit for tat in terms of regulation between Europe and the Americas. And, mm-hmm. you know, I guess a, a case in point is, um, you know, the long waging war in accounting standards. You've got the uh, international, you know, IFRS, the international accounting standards versus U.S. GAAP, the U.S. approach to um, the regulation of accounting disclosures Mm. uh, and and measurements. Now, when we look at regulation that's happening in the digital asset market, there's also, I I get the sense that there's also this war between Europe and the Americas. What's happening in that space and where's that likely to dominate? Well, I'm, I don't know necessarily if it's a war because I think that that every jury regulation, right, regulator in jurisdiction is trying to grapple to come to terms with it in their own in their own way. With with the US to stay with the US for a minute, um, there is an act in front of the US Senate that was brought in, I think, in September, a Digital Commodity Exchange Act, where what they're trying to do is bring digital currency exchanges such as you know BTC markets, if we were in America under one federal framework because currently it's all splintered between each of the different states um so they're trying to kind of put together a federal response and kind of build something suppose cohesive and, and, and more thought through um in the us however that's still very much uh, you know a train that's in motion mm-hmm. to kind of gazump them if you like the european union brought out as well i think it was also in september or perhaps the start of october in these COVID times, sitting here in lockdown, Victoria, I've lost the track of what month we're in. But with the with well, the EU have brought down. Yeah. <laughs> That's all you have to worry about, Carolyn. <laughs> um, so anyway, so I was saying the European Union brought out a, a very comprehensive um, f- a proposal um, into the European Commission, rather to mm. put forward a framework of what they call the Markets in Crypto Assets or MICA. They love a good acronym. And it is extremely comprehensive. It mm. is thought through um, 
even from this, the extent of, say, what a white paper is. So, so if a crypto asset or digital asset wants to be listed, how is it listed? The format mm-hmm. of the white paper, the information that needs to be there, who that white paper then needs to be registered with, um, all the different kind of liabilities and responsibilities of each of the parties to, to that. And then equally, then it, it goes to, to cryptocurrency exchanges or digital asset exchanges such as SLs what the regulatory environment would be for us, for us if we were to go into Europe. Um, kind of all this, the, the, the nuts and bolts that you'd expect to see from the traditional markets, like kind of orderly operation of marketplaces and, and fair and reasonable and rules of operation, etc. The whole thing, they've put forward this, this large-scale proposal. Um, and so not just for the markets, but they've also recognised is the need for... I suppose, digital savvy. So they've put forward um, a Digital Operational Resilience Act, or DORA, as I say, they love a, they love a good acronym. But, and this was interesting here is that it doesn't just apply to digital assets or crypto exchanges. It also applies to financial services. So we're now all being bucketed in together in a regulatory point of view. And this is a new piece of, of regulation put together just recently. So it encompasses as much of it as they can, but but digital exchanges are now being considered the same as financial services. But the point of this is that the digital operational resilience is to do with um, the robustness of your IT systems and securities and what have you got in place. I think it recognises the new reality that all financial services um, businesses operate in, which is to say the, the vulnerabilities that exist. So they've kind of put all of that together under one large scale um piece of regulation that's now going through and being discussed in the European Union. Sitting here in Australia, um, I, I look at that and think that's, it. for me, it's a really clear indicator, both from European and, and US, of the direction that we're all going to be heading in um, as a global market. We are long past the point in any kind of uh, developed country um, that that kind of regulatory contagion, if you like, doesn't Spread. So if the Americans are doing it, if the Europeans are doing it, that means the UK is going to do it soon. Asia is already developing on their own framework. Australia is going to be picking up the slack soon too. Yeah. Well, the RBA's got this watch and wait approach at the moment, mm. which is probably sensible. But let's flip over to um, the Bank of International Settlements. So mm. um, BIS are working on this. Here's another acronym, the CDBC. So just in, in a few minutes, can you just unpack what a CDBC is and 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 the and the program that's underway with um, Bank of International Settlements. Yeah, so it's so CBDC, Central Bank Digital Currency. Now this is an idea that's been kicking around for a few years, and the idea being that the the we're going to a further evolution of money or cash money, I suppose if you like, or fiat money, um, where once we used to pay in bags of salt, then we moved, you know, to kind of gold tokens, the gold standard, then we've moved to paper and, and coins. Then we moved to, we do have a, a, a digital, um, you know, money as at the moment, like the money in my bank account. I don't look at paper. I don't, I don't use paper money anymore. I only use my card. Um, uh, yeah, so that's digital cash. But what the CBDC is, is it's going to say, right, we're no longer going to issue or perhaps for one section of the, of the, um, of the economy, we're not going to issue any more of this paper money. We're only going to do it, um, via digital format so yeah. and, and and the blockchain is relevant here cbdc's don't need to be blockchain based they can be used on other technology 
but it's kind of been developed in conjunction with um, blockchain due to the reliability and the fact that it is ledgers, basically, but, you know, blockchain um, technology is based around the ledgers and moving back and forth of, of, of who has what. Um, so CBDC is the most developed form at the moment in the world is in China. They are pushing ahead. They, they had been kind of kicking the heels around on a, on a CBDC for some time. Then Libra came out in the US um, as a form of a state coin and i think for the chinese they just were like okay we're not going to allow any more domination you know us dollar obviously is, is a global currency we're going to try and see what we can do with our cbdc to make our currency the dominant digital currency so they're much further ahead than than the rest of us um but in reference to the bank of international settlements they've come together with seven other central banks I think it's the ECB, uh, Bank of Sweden, uh, Bank of England, et cetera, et cetera. Canada's in there. I think Japan's in there. There's a number of other major economies have all come together and are now actively exploring, well, what would a CBDC look like? Um, what's the design? Because there's a few different characteristics here you have to look at. The design of the CBDC is absolutely crucial. I mean, w- one key part of it is to do with interoperability. You know, it needs to be easily transferable around the world, which is where something like a, a you know blockchain protocol would be very useful there because all those rules are predefined. But there's also concerns around around privacy and around control because if you then hand over, as is the case, say for with the Chinese version, um, that that sits with the PBOC, so that sits effectively with the Chinese government. They have the ability because it's digital. They have the ability to turn that bank account that money in your wallet on and off at will because that's the nature of a, of a you know somebody holds that digital transaction but on the other side of it it also means extremely inexpensive financial services widespread um availability um and you know tremendous ease of use so there's there's a push and a pull there's a give and a take with all of this but it's as much to do with the design of the currency so so in china the chinese government have designed it that way the people of china are happy with it you know so be it the question then would be what would be a version that we would be happy with in in europe in the us and here in australia and and kind of to your point with the rba has has done some some exploratory research into it they don't see a use case as of yet or the use case has not been given to them yet which says that we need a digital currency here in australia other than what we currently have the digital payment platforms and so forth that we use mpp etc they don't see the use case to develop it any further but like you said they are what I would call putting on a watching brief. It's a watch and wait and let's see what comes out of other jurisdictions. Because this is the thing with all of this innovation, you know, once one major economy pushes forward, it, it is kind of on the rest of them to, to, to play catch up. Mm-hmm. And, and kind of the first out the gate tends to write the rules to an extent. Mm-hmm. So it's really interesting to see you've got China on one side and then you've potentially got other developed countries on the other each kind of coming up with their own competing or or unified version of this currency. I mean, I don't think it's going to be like it was, say, with the European Union, where the euro came out and you had all those different economies all signed up to a single currency. I don't think that's going to be the case. But who knows? I mean, let's see what they come up with. But it's um, but yeah. So that that's my short, succinct version of what CBDC is. All right. Well, look, um, we're 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 out of time, but I'd just like to sort of summarise, you know, some of the some of the key takeaways from this. So certainly. You know what we've seen is um, you know this this heady ride with Bitcoin um, a few years ago. Um, it's it's pulled back with COVID. It's broken through this sort of psychological resistance barrier, I guess, which is this 
10,000 US dollar um, um, uh, price point. Um, and I think this is a really significant price event for um, any sort of technical analyst looking at this. The mm. other thing that we're saying is that we've, you know, there's a there's a, a, a very large um, volume of retail investors getting into this. But like you said, the 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 um, you know the entrance and the exit you know path for institutional investment um, is you know is being developed, and there's much more insto money going into this. And then we're mm. also central banks working on really ambitious programs like these, you know, um, CBDCs. I mean, this all bodes well for, for, I guess, you know, JP Morgan's comments that, you know, Bitcoin's here to stay. This is an asset class that is worthy of, um, you know, of, of attention. It's worthy of investment. It's certainly been performing extremely well. Carolyn, I, I want to get you back on the program another time to uh, to continue this. There is so much to talk about in this, yeah. in this space. It's very exciting. But look, um, we'll end it at that point. So thanks very much to Carolyn Bowler, CEO of BTC Markets, for joining us for this edition of Stock Talk. Thanks very much. Thank you so much.